Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. The first reading comes from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 to 25. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralysed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. The second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 28, starting at verse 17. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders, and when they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But the Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason I have asked to see you and talk with you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are for we know what people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. 
Now, some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their ears, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I would like to say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many long months of toil and struggle. You ask what is our policy? I will say... It is to wage war with all our might, with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalogue of human crime. You ask what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. This was Churchill's first speech as Prime Minister in 1940. Winston Churchill was a great leader in a time of crisis. Winston Churchill set a vision for his people through the words he spoke. It was as much as I could do this morning not to try and do my best Winston Churchill accent (laughs) as I read those words which have been so often done. He cast a vision for his nation. I was at a breakfast on Saturday, uh, last Saturday at a friend's place. It was spruiking the merits of the organisation City to City and another organisation called Neighbour. And Andrew Catter, who was leading the conversation, spoke about how important it is for Christian leaders to cast a vision to help people understand not what they're doing per se, but how they're doing it, the context in which they're doing it. Ministry is not just doing things, but setting out to do activities with a vision. Christian leaders are not just people who do things, but they work out how to persuade others to join the crew to get things done as well. So when our majestic leader... Jesus Christ begins his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4. He begins casting a vision. He could have said, repent, for the king is here. But he does not. He says, repent, for the kingdom is near. 
He was doing more than just pointing to himself. He was giving a vision for what God wants for his people. Of whom, of course, he was the king and the centre. Well, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. And from that time on, we read in 4.17 from Matthew's Gospel, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven, heaven has got so close, there's an urgency. It's near in time. But also, of course, for those who had ears to hear, the kingdom of heaven was near because Christ the King had turned up. The kingdom was close in time and the kingdom was close in space. And when Jesus has preached that the kingdom of heaven is near, we see how those first followers responded. Verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. They saw the urgency that time was pressed and they left everything to be physically close. They understood that when this kingdom came, they had to obey immediately. That his call to follow involved time and space. They recognised this hidden treasure in the field. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. It's an important point to make. When I was at college, this was the slogan, the kingdom is now and not yet. I suspect the slogan still exists. But when Jesus comes preaching, it's not that he's merely speaking about time. He's thinking about place as well. There's more to the kingdom than just urgency. We need to be close. We need to understand the proximity of the king as well as the urgency of the message he brings. The gospel of the kingdom is not merely about my soul. It's about God's plans and purposes for the world in which I have a place. Jesus goes on in 4.23 to make this very point. He went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. The kingdom was being preached, but the kingdom involved healing of bodies as well. 
how we live in this world with our bodies matters to Christ. Christ the King is casting a glorious vision about the kingdom of which he's the centre through his death, resurrection, ascension. But he's the centre in order that there might be something wonderful to experience. Jesus puts himself at the centre of Israel. His new vision saw himself at the centre, not the land, as the zealots might have thought, not the law, as the Pharisees might have believed, not the liturgy, as the Sadducees might have defended. He, Christ the Lord, is the centre of this renewed Israel. And isn't it interesting in the reading from Acts 28, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And we hear twice in those paragraphs that he taught about the kingdom and explained to them Jesus Christ from the law and the prophets. Paul was preaching the kingdom, that grand vision of which Christ the Lord is the centre. Effectively for Paul, preaching the kingdom and teaching about Christ are almost the same thing. Luke, in his gospel, uses the word kingdom some 40-odd times, but only six times in the book of Acts. The same guy who wrote Luke, who wrote Acts, he knows the word kingdom. He had used it a lot in his first volume, but in his second volume, he uses it very sparingly, but speaks a lot about the reign of the king and the power of the spirit. Well, in our world, people don't understand the language of kingdom very well or indeed might feel uncomfortable about kingdom language. That wasn't the case, of course, for those earliest uh, listeners to Jesus or to Paul. People don't have much background in thinking about what the kingdom means. But effectively, to speak about the kingdom for us is to preach about the person of Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit to change lives. I mentioned last week that Luke Skywalker had a role in my conversion. It was only a minor role in the end. <laughs> Certainly thinking about uh, Luke Skywalker and Star Wars had got me thinking. But it was actually when I first heard why Jesus died for my sins that I became a Christian. It was in a lunchtime group at Bayswater High School uh, it was explained that Jesus died on the cross to make us clean on the inside. Now, I'd known about Jesus, but no one had ever explained to me why he died. And when I heard that, it was like an explosion in my head. I got it. And I went home, not, not at lunchtime, but at the end of the day, I went home uh, knelt by my bedside and prayed that God would make me clean on the inside through Christ's death. 
it wasn't preaching about the kingdom that converted me. It was preaching about the king, the Lord Jesus, and his death uh, and resurrection. Friends, we need in Melbourne and beyond more evangelists. Evangelists with the skills, with financial backing, with heart and courage, more evangelists to name the name of Jesus amongst people who've never met him, who've never learned to trust him or receive the forgiveness he offers. We need to be encouraging our peers here at Ridley in their evangelistic skills and pray God that we can actually find churches who will employ people as specialist evangelists. We have so very few. I think actually Guy Mason at Sidney Hill is one of Victoria's best evangelists and pray for him in his own evangelistic ministry. But we need more than one or two. If we start thinking about the theme of the kingdom of God, we're effectively asking a question about who is speaking about the king? And when you, over lunch or morning tea, have had some wonderful experiences of speaking of Christ, why not share those evangelistic stories so that we might cultivate an appreciation, an upskilling of our own evangelistic brothers and sisters. I went to the General Synod of the National Church, the National Anglican Church in April this year, and it was quite a difficult week. But one of the highlights was gathering in the evenings to share stories about how evangelism's working in various parts of the country, either amongst children or refugees or uh, the elderly in, in care homes. When we start speaking about the kingdom, it's not very long before we start to speak about evangelism. So how did people respond to the preaching of Jesus or the preaching of Paul? Well, Jesus explains that when you hear the kingdom preached, you need to repent, to turn away from something, to turn to Christ. But actually... That might be explained in a few places, but frequently the word, the verb that's used connected to the word kingdom is to enter. To enter the kingdom, which means turning away from your sin and turning towards Christ. But often the language of entering is used. It's like becoming part of a new country, finding a new homeland, not just a fresh start, certainly that but a new way of thinking about your relationships and authority and your aspirations. Listen to how all the Bible writers, all the New Testament writers, speak about entering the kingdom. When you stop and think, it's thick on the ground. Jesus says in Matthew 18, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. Or John 
3.3 says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. Or Paul in Colossians 1, he's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Or quoting Jesus in Acts 14.22, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Or Peter in 2 Peter 1.11, In this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour. Or Jesus in Matthew 16 explains how his people have responsibility with the keys of the kingdom to help people know whether they've entered the kingdom or not. This is so significant in our understanding of the Bible's presentation of the kingdom of God. You might have seen on TV in recent months, Ukrainian refugees leaving their homeland, their cities under threat and heading west to Poland and finally reaching the border, crossing the border into Poland and the joy on their faces as they recognise that now they can be safe, relieved after their arduous journey. Isn't that what it means to become a Christian, to enter a new country and to feel relief and joy? Well, the ad that keeps popping up on my Facebook feed, it's an ad for refugee advocacy where a family's arrived at an Australian airport and one of the welcomers reaches to the kid, a stuffed animal, and the kid's face beams and the adults around him are joyful because of his joy. That's what it's like to enter the kingdom, to find yourself in a new place with all the blessings that involves. It's interesting that the New Testament never speaks about building the kingdom. The New Testament doesn't speak about establishing the kingdom. The New Testament doesn't expect us to make way for the kingdom. But the New Testament does expect us to enter the kingdom and to encourage others to do that as well. But of course, we might preach that people enter the kingdom. But we need to pray that people would enter the kingdom as well. Jesus is saying that in Matthew chapter 6 when he teaches us the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father in heaven, only a prayer that Christians can pray, reflecting intimacy with God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name not be made holy, because God can't be made holy, but his name can be treated in a holy way. May your name be hallowed. May your name be holy, of which a subset is your kingdom come. 
that more people in this world would treat the name of God as holy and do his will. Removing their opposition and submitting to his will and his ways. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus asking us to pray that more people would become Christians. And in fact, remarkably, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus uses the same kind of language. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. The very same words Jesus is uh, reusing in that verse. We need to do God's will. We need to hallow his name if we want to enter the kingdom. So are you praying for conversions? Are you praying when you pray for Mongolia or Fiji or Chile, praying that people in those lands would enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, when we pray for any country in the world, we need to be praying for conversions in those places too. Listen to these words from 2 Timothy 2. I beg your pardon, 1 Timothy 2. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all peoples, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So Paul is asking us to pray when we meet for those in authority, for kings that we might have in those countries peaceful, quiet lives. But look what the next verse says, verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Saviour that we pray for governments. Uh, who, God who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Because part of the reason we're praying for governments, that there might be stability in countries, is so that more people would become Christians. We not only preach the kingdom, but we pray that God's kingdom would come as well. Your job is to envision people how great the kingdom is and to preach the kingdom and to pray that the kingdom would come by praying that people would know Christ the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we have entered the kingdom. As John would say, for us, eternal life has already begun. We belong to a new day and we have a new home. The kingdom of God is not just a utopian idea sometime, somewhere, somehow. The kingdom of God is a vision for how real people like you and me, filled with the spirit, can fill the earth. Jesus sets this vision before us in another way. What should we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable should we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. 
Yet when it's planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. So let me pray. We ask you, dear Lord Jesus, to help us do the work of evangelism. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help us preach the good news of Christ's kingdom. We pray that you'd help us to pray, to pray that more men and women, boys and girls in this city and around the world would place their trust in him. And all these things we ask that his name might be hallowed. Amen.